book of Revelation. And uh, we're into the into chapter 3 already of the book of Revelation. And we remember, don't we, brethren, as, the, as we began this verse-by-verse verse study of the book of Revelation, the whole purpose of the book of Revelation is to reveal the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. I mean, this, this is the purpose of the book of Revelation. And so often... People look at the book of Revelation. They, they shy away from the book of Revelation because there are some things. Let's just be, let's just admit it, amen. There are some things that you look at in the book of Revelation. And you go, well, I'm not, I'm not exactly precisely sure, you know, how that's going to unfold exactly, amen. It's kind of like the Old Testament prophets. They were being led along and they would write something concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. That's something that hadn't happened yet, the crucifixion, whatever it might be. And they kind of saw it through a little bit of cloudy lenses, if you will, because it hasn't happened yet. And that's the same here as we get into, well, chapter 4 is coming. And I was telling Brother Daryl, chapter 4 is just around the corner. And, uh, but really, the, the main purpose of the revelation, again, is to reveal the person of Jesus Christ. Amen. And who he is. And, uh, and so tonight, again, as I was telling Daryl earlier when we were talking, it's going to be a lot of theology this evening. Because the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, we must have a proper theological understanding of who the Lord Jesus Christ is. And so when he introduces himself to the seventh and the sixth candlestick tonight, the church at Philadelphia, he begins in a very theological manner by introducing himself theologically. And again, this is important as he is addressing the church. The church is made up of saints. It's made up of blood-bought Christians. It's made up of those whom Christ died for. And uh, so uh, in order have a church in such a manner, we must have a good theological grasp of who the Lord Jesus Christ is. So turn with me there, if you would, tonight, Revelation chapter 3. We're going to be reading verses 7 through 13, uh, but uh, we're going to get done with verse 7 tonight, uh, it looks like to me. So let's read together there in context. Brethren, this is the very word of God himself, the very preserved words in which he would have us to have. Look at verse number 7. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things saith he that is holy. That's a theological term. <laughs> we're going to look at this. Right? Three things we're going to see in verse 7 that deal specifically with the Lord Jesus Christ from a theological standpoint. He says that he, and the Bible says, He that is holy. Look at the second thing. He that is true. Again, this is very much a theological discussion concerning his personhood. And so this is what he opens to the church of Philadelphia with. And then look at the third thing. He that hath the key of David, he that openeth and no man shutteth, and shutteth and no man openeth. I mean, man, there's just a whole lot just in that verse. And then verse number eight, look there if you would. I know thy works. And brother, we remember, sovereign, omniscient Christ, again, is standing here in this sixth candlestick, his church at Philadelphia. And he said this to each one of the churches, to all seven of them. I know thy works, because he's omniscient God. And so he knows what's going on and happening in the church. He said, I know thy works. Behold, I set before thee an open door, and no man can shut it. For thou hast a little strength, and hast kept my word, and hast not denied my name. What a great description of a faithful church. A church, brethren, that uh, we would like to have, you know, after our name. A faithful church, one who has not denied Christ, one who has remained faithful to him. That's what we would most desire, wouldn't we, brethren? Look at there, if you would. Has kept my word and has not denied my name. Verse number nine. Behold, 
I will make uh, them of the synagogue of Satan, which say they are Jews and are not, but do, but do lie. Behold, I will make them come and to worship before thy feet, and to know that I have loved thee. Oh, there's another great thing. We won't get there, but think of the words that Christ is saying to this church. Because thou hast kept the word of my patience, I also will keep thee from the hour of temptation, which shall come upon all the world, to try them that dwell upon the earth. Behold, I come quickly. Hold uh, that fast which thou hast. Again, another admonition to the church as he closes, that no man take thy crown. Uh, him that overcometh will I make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go uh, no more out. And I will write upon him my, the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, which is New Jerusalem, which cometh down out of heaven from my God. And I will write upon him my new name. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Well, again, brethren, as I kind of already opened, we are now delving into the sixth candlestick, the Lord Jesus Christ standing amongst the sixth church in Philadelphia. That word Philadelphia literally means love for the brethren. That's literally what that word means. It literally means that. It was named after Atlas Philadelphus, the king of Pergamus, Pergamum who built the city between about 159 to 138 B.C., which at the time consisted, and we hear in the language here, it had an overabundance of Jewish uh, people in the community. So you hear Jesus speaking some Jewish things there to the church. But that's because there was an overabundance of Jews that were there in that area. And as we always do, we like to give a little kind of a layout where Philadelphia is located at. And so it's about 28 miles southeast of Sardis, which is the church we were just in in the book of revelation so again we're making that loop around and we're almost back down to the bottom where uh we will get to the seventh church lord willing in a few weeks the church at laodicea that will be the final and seventh church that he writes the letter to now philadelphia that particular that the one that we're that jesus is writing to here is very uh, famous for its earthquakes in fact they've had many many earthquakes there that have actually destroyed the city of Philadelphia on many occasions. It's quite an amazing thing. In fact, the most recent earthquake, in, uh, corresponding with the writing of the book of Revelation, was in about 37 AD, which was, uh, which was about 60 years before they received this letter, which is quite interesting because verse 12, of course, draws our attention. Just think of this. A city that is famous for earthquakes that's been destroyed over and over again. Look what Jesus tells the church there. Look what he says in verse number 12. A, a city, a place ridden with earthquakes. He says to them in verse 12, Him that overcometh will I make a what? I'll make a pillar in the temple of my God. A pillar is a strong foundation. So he's referencing here again. He's telling the church as you look around and see what's happened. Just 60 years ago, an earthquake got destroyed the city. But I'm going to make you a pillar in the temple of my God. And so he's speaking there again of his sure foundation. Christ's sure affirmation of the church who has been faithful. That he will make them a pillar there is what he says. We remember also, don't we brethren, uh, just from our studies that we've been going through here. That uh, of the Lord's seven letters, there are only two. Two letters in which the Lord Jesus Christ does not condemn or cause great consternation too. And if it was Sunday morning Bible study, I'd ask you which two, and I'm sure you two remember there. 
One of them was Smyrna. But in that church, he didn't condemn the church or criticize the church, but he did, brother, and he did summon them, didn't he, to remain faithful until death. But here in our church this evening, the church at Philadelphia, all we see is accolades from him. It's filled with accolades from him who stands in the midst of this church. Again, thinking, brother, how we would like the Lord to speak of our church. These wonderful accolades concerning their faithfulness. And he introduces himself there, as I said, as he that is holy, he that is true, and he that hath the key of David. And again, these three things we're going to look at this evening because we will be out of time, I'm sure. And doing so, as he introduces himself, the Lord Jesus here clearly declares to all the world his deity amongst the Godhead. This is what he's saying, again, telling the church that I am deity, I am Christ, I am amongst the Godhead. And he declares his deity with these statements that he makes to the church. Isn't that wonderful? Remember, faithful church, I am Christ, I am God, I am the Son, the second person of the Trinity. And this, literally, as we look at this theologically tonight, this is what he's declaring unto them. Look at there, look at verse number 7 there, again, as we look at the first declaration as he introduces himself he says unto the angel of the church in Philadelphia write these things saith he that is what holy he that is holy now brethren this evening unless you are a heretic we all believe do we not that Christ is sinless <laughs> I mean is there anybody in the room tonight that doesn't believe Christ is sinless if you are if you believe that then you cannot be saved we all believe that brother the Bible declares that, does it not, on several occasions that Christ is sinless. In fact, let me just give you a couple of the hundreds of verses concerning his sinlessness. Look at what Holy Writ states, Seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. Now you know what comes next. Amen? For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are yet without sin. Christ is sinless. The Bible declares that. Again, Holy Writ says this. And ye know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him there is no what? Sin. So again, the Lord Jesus is sinless. We all believe that. We all understand that. We by faith, trust in that, because that is one of the prerequisites, brother, is it not? One of the commands and demands of God, that the Lord Jesus Christ, as the sinless Lamb of God, takes away the sins of the world. That is a prerequisite of God the Father. That was part of who He is. Now, the Lord Jesus Christ is holy. Not only in the sense of being perfect and without sin, but here, as we look at our text, he is holy, he is set apart because of his uniqueness, because of his begottenness. Can I use these big words? His uniqueness, his begottenness, brethren, his set apartness. In other words, there is none like him. And this is what he's declaring to the church. There is none like me. I'm holy not only in that I'm sinless and perfect, but I'm holy because I'm set apart and I'm unique within the Godhead to the church. When Jesus says that he is holy, he is speaking here, brother, of his identification with the Father 
within the Godhead, the Holy Trinity. This is what he's declaring to the church. I am God. I am God. I am the Son. God the Son. He who came in the flesh. This is what he's declared theologically to the church that they might grasp and get a hold of that. In fact, we see through Scripture, and I want you to turn there with me, uh, that the, Holy, the, the Trinity of God is declared holy only twice in Scripture. And what do I mean by that? I mean that holy, holy, holy is used to denote the Trinity of God and its holiness, which means that they are set apart, which means that they are unique, that they are self, shall we say, as I think Howard quoted the verse maybe last Sunday, Sunday in Bible study, that God is set apart, He's unique, He's holy, Christ, the Father, the Son, and the, and the Holy Spirit. I want you to see this. Look at Isaiah chapter 6, and uh, turn there with me if you would. And I want you to see one of the times where holy, holy, holy is used in holy scripture. Holy writ, a very familiar portion of scripture to us. And it's important as we begin our text this evening, in fact, I preached through this text about five years ago, I think. And one of the first things we see that Isaiah sees is he sees the Lord. And brethren, in order for you to be saved, you must see the Lord for who he is. Amen. And then later he sees himself for who he is and the people for who they are. And they realize and understand that God is holy and they are not. Look here, if you would, at verse number one. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord. That's an important uh, word right there, brother. And again, we're talking about the Trinity of God. All right? Sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. Above it stood the seraphims. Each, uh, each one had six wings. With twain he covered his face, and with twain uh, he covered his feet, and with twain he did fly. In verse 3, look what this uh, cherubim is crying out. He says, And one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy. One of the two times in Scripture that this, this terminology is used. Holy, holy, holy. Keeping in mind that Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up. The Lord is holy, holy, holy. Referencing, of course, the Trinity of God. Is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. Now, brethren, you say, well, how do you know that? How do you know that this is the Lord Jesus that Isaiah is seeing? Well, I'm glad you asked. That's why we have the New Testament, brethren. The New Testament is the what? Inspired commentary on what we're seeing here in the book of Isaiah. So turn with me to John chapter again. This is theology. This is what he's saying to them. He is holy, 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 the Trinity of God. He is the second person of that. Look at John chapter 12. And again, keeping in mind, what did Isaiah say in verse 1? I saw the Lord high and lifted up. And holy, 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 they were declaring of him. Look at John chapter 12. Again, so thankful for inspired commentary on the Old Testament as we turn here to John chapter 12. Now look at verse number 37. Look there if you would. The Lord Jesus has just got done having a discussion. A very familiar portion of scripture. Verse 32, and if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. So they're having this discussion about Christ. It's about Christ. And you look there at verse 37. But though he had done so many miracles before them, yet they believed not on who? Him. Who's the him in the text? You can say it. It's, it's Wednesday evening. Who's the him in the text? Christ. 
Christ is the one that they've got to believe on, right? So we see there to keep keep reading, okay? So they, they the Bible says there that they believe not on him, Christ. That's who the him is. Look at verse 38. Look at who he quotes. But though he had done so many miracles before them, yet they believed not on him, Christ, that the saying of Isaiah, the prophet, might be fulfilled, which he spake, Lord, who hath believed our report, and to whom hath the arm of the Lord been revealed? Who is he quoting? Isaiah 53, verse number 1. So he's again referring back to the prophet Isaiah. So we're sitting here. Keep reading. All right. Look at verse 39 and 40. Look what he does. He quotes Isaiah uh, 6, verse number 10. Look at verse 39. Therefore they could not believe, because that Isaiah said again, He hath blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, that they should not see with their eyes, nor understand with their heart, and be converted, and I should heal them. That's Isaiah 6.10. Where did we just read from? Isaiah chapter 6, right? 1, 2, 3. If we would have kept reading, we would have run right into that text in Isaiah chapter 6. Now pay attention to the hymn. Pay attention to who the hymn is in this text. It's very important. Again, in Isaiah chapter 1, it says, Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up. Well, here it defines for us who he saw. Look there if you would. If you would there at verse 41. These things said Isaiah, when he saw his glory and spake of him. Who's the him? The him is Christ. That's who he saw in Isaiah chapter 6, verse number 1. He saw Christ, the, the, the member of the Trinity of God, holy, holy, holy. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are holy, brother. They are set apart. They are unique. They are separate. This is what he's saying. But look there, if you would, again, at verse 42. None, none, nevertheless, among the chief rulers also, many believe on him. Who's the him? Christ. Christ is the whole center of the whole context. Christ. Isaiah saw Christ. And this is what Christ is saying to them. This is what he's saying to them. I am holy. He that is holy. He that is unique. He that is begotten in a unique way. The one and only unique Son of God. This is what he's saying. Christ is holy. Now, brethren, as we are going to look at, Christ is holy. Not only is he holy as part of the Trinity of God, the Godhead, but he says, I am true. Again, brethren, another needed attribute of sinless Christ. Another one that the Father would draw and certainly demand. But look at the other time. Look at one other time in Scripture when this holy, holy, holy is used. Look back to Revelation, our book that we're in this evening. In fact, Revelation chapter 4. And I want you to see again the connection. This is, again, God's Word is so woven so tightly and neatly together, brethren. You could never tear it apart. It's so tightly woven with theology of Christ. And so needful for his church to grasp and get a hold of this. Look at the only other time in Holy Writ when that phrase is used. Look at Revelation chapter 4. Look there, if you would, at verse number 8. The Bible says, And the four beasts had each of them six wings about him, and they were full of eyes within. And they rest not day and night, saying, Holy, holy, holy. Now listen carefully. To the last portion of that scripture, holy, 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 look what it says, Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come. 
Well, who claimed that he is and was and is to come? Who claimed that? Christ did and God the Father did. So we see these again, brother, this theology that he is laying forth for the church. I'm weird, okay? Maybe it's just me. But my brain thinks this way, and I've told you this a thousand times. I could immerse myself in theology day and night, and I would never get tired of it. This, to me, is just so vital to the letter that he's writing to this faithful church. Because you know why? Because they've been faithful in that. They've been faithful in the fundamentals of the person of Christ. That's what he really writes them for and says, I gave you great acclamation for your faithfulness concerning the deep theology of me. Because the deep theology of me is what saves you. Yes. We were talking about it today. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Right? There's another Jesus. Do you understand that? There's another Jesus that comes. There's another spirit that comes. Therefore, brethren, we must be sound foundationally in the Lord Jesus Christ of Scripture. Even when you have a little chat with the Mormons when they come to your door. Oh, it's a hooter and a half. Even they have got to admit, and they will admit, they've admitted it to me on many occasions, because you draw it out of them, that they do not have the same Christ. Here in this faithful church, Christ is saying, you were faithful in those fundamental, foundational things concerning who I am, the person of Christ. Again, which is very, very important, because you remember in Revelation chapter 1, look at that, look at verses 7 and 8, the close, how he, how, he, how he finishes off verse 8 here, which was and is and is to come. Look what Christ said in Revelation chapter 1. Again, we looked at this, look at verse 7. Behold, he cometh with the clouds. Who's that? Christ. Again, you have, always have to have the context. Who's the context speaking of? It's speaking of Christ. Christ is coming in the clouds. Look what he says. He cometh with the clouds, and every eye shall see him, and they also which pierced him. And all the kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him, even so. Amen. Look at verse 8. I am what? The Alpha and Omega. The beginning and the ending, saith the Lord. Which is, here it is. Here's the depth of theology. Here is Christ claiming to be one with the Father. Which is and which was and which is to come, the Almighty. This is Christ. This is who Isaiah saw. This is who Christ is presenting to the church at Philadelphia. God. Christ in the flesh. God. And he commends them. And he gives them glowing praise for being faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ and to his personhood concerning how scripture teaches him. And again, brethren, this is so needful. It's those subtle little things. It's the subtle changes, brethren. That's why we're always so hypersensitive around here. I always say that. We're hypersensitive because we have to be. Because of those subtle little things that, how does the Bible put it? They sneak alongside privily. means to come alongside. They stealthily come in. So the holiness of Christ, his uniqueness, his begottenness, his set-apartness, there's none like him, truly is, brethren, a most grand, 
and glorious subject and great praise throughout all of Scripture. It is clearly foundational. I'll look back to Revelation chapter 3 again. He's holy. Not only is he holy, but look what he says concerning himself. He says, he that is holy. It doesn't just mean that he's holy, but it is who he is. It is his very substance. Now he says the same type of language concerning the second way that he introduces himself theologically to the church. Look at there, Revelation chapter 3. Look what he says. These things save he that is holy, one. Look at the second way, he that is what? True. True. Brethren, I think I said last Lord's Day or the Lord's Day before, the truth of God is so needful for us. In a world that is so upside down concerning truth, truth is fallen in the street, truth is no more. But again, when Jesus says here that he is true, he is again speaking of his identification with the Father within the Godhead. The declarative statement that the Lord Jesus is holy and true does not simply describe those tendencies of him. Can I say it again? It is not just describing some tendency within him. It is, brethren, as we say, they are in fact his very being. To, they reveal to every believing one, and again, this is again foundational and factual, that he is holy and, and two, that he is true. It's factual and foundational, brothers and sisters, because this reveals to every believing one that he is Yahweh. That he is Yahweh. This is the intention. This is what it means. Because he is holy and true in an absolute sense. One that you and I most of the time can't even begin to understand. In fact, again, this attribute, this very being of Christ, is again something that is spoken throughout Scripture concerning him. And this again is why we can rely and trust so deeply in Scripture. Because in Numbers, remember what it says? In fact, it's an Old Testament text. Let's just go there and read it together, because I like, I like these words in my ears. And I pray you like them too, because they just, again, they, they, they really just shore up the foundation of who Christ is, who God is. Look at Numbers 23. We were just looking at that portion of Scripture in Sunday school. <laughs> you thought I was altogether like one of you. <laughs> in fact, if you back up in the text, you'll see what they were like. And then God says to them, if you thought I was like you, you think I'm a liar, you think I'm a cheater, you think I'm this and that. I am so much above that. Because he's what? Holy. He's sinless, perfect. But look here in the Old Testament. Can I ask you tonight, brother, is this a different dispensation than the when the letter of Revelation was written? I think so. There's several dispensations that have gone by since this was written here in Numbers. But look at the unity, look at how it's threaded together through the covenants, through the dispensations of time, these characteristics of God that never change. And brethren, tonight, we are thankful that they don't. Can you imagine if they did? What foundation would we have? None. Look at Numbers 23. Look at verse number 19. Again, a familiar portion of Scripture. God is not a man that he should what? Lie. You know why? Because his very being is to be true. It's to be truthful. 
God is not a man that he should lie, neither the son of man that he should repent. Hath he said, and shall he not do it? Or hath he spoken, and shall it not, and shall he not make it good? Now why is this important, brethren? Again, roll along with me into another dispensation of time in Romans chapter 3. Again, just seeing this wonderful character of God, this wonderful attribute of God, his very nature. Why is it important? <clears throat> Brethren, how can I illustrate this? It's, I'm, trying to, I'm trying to bring this into my mind. How can we illustrate this, brother? When you stand before a judge, you want a judge who's going to be true. You do not want a judge that changes his mind and changes on every whim and every emotion and every feeling. You want a God or a judge. <laughs> Let me say that because God is a judge. We're going to see this here. This is why it's important that he is true. Because his judgments are true. And when we stand before him, those of us who are robed in Christ, you want him to be true to you. Because he said, right? I will never leave you nor forsake you. Never ever. Remember we looked at that. No, not ever. Never. The old double negative to prove that positive. Amen? Amen. Think of this, brother. We, we just got some new stickers. And you guys, please take them. Put them on your cars. Do whatever you want with them. What does one of them say? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. You want that truth. You want that to be true. You want God to say, I said it and I will not change. Because that's his nature, his being. He's true. And as you stand before him, he will be true. Who will judge you, those of us who have trusted in Christ, based on Christ's works, based on his merit? He won't change that. Even though we struggle with sin, even though we wrestle with it, even though we fall down into it, he will drag you back up. He will stand you on that solid rock because of his son, because of what he's done. He sees you in him. You want that to be true. Because if he doesn't see you in him, you're condemned to hell. Look at what Paul writes under the inspiration of God. Romans chapter 3, look at verse number 4. God forbid. Again, strongest two of the strongest words used in Holy Writ literally means may it never be. Never, never. God forbid, yea, let God be what? True, but every man a liar, as it is written, that thou mightest be justified in thy sayings and mightest overcome when thou art, what? Judged. But if our unrighteousness commend the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unrighteous who taketh vengeance? I speak as a man. Look at that, he uses it again. God forbid, may it never be, may it never, never be. For how then shall God, what? Judge the world. This important characteristic of God, his attribute, his very being, is so relevant and needful for you and I this evening because you want God to have true judgment. Because again, if you're in Christ, you will be judged based on his work. Look at Revelation chapter 3. Look what he says to the church as we get there, Lord willing, in just a couple of weeks. You know the lukewarm church, that one? The one that gets condemned because they're lukewarm. 
you don't want to be lukewarm. He says, I, I'm gonna, I wish you were one or the other. I'm going to spew you out of my mouth. You don't want that said about the church. You want what he's saying to Philadelphia. You're faithful. You've been faithful in my theology of who I am, the person of who I am, and some other things that we're going to look at. But look what he says here to, as he stands in the midst of the seventh candlestick, the church at Laodicea. Look at what he says to them as he judges them. Look at verse number 14. He says, And unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things saith the Amen. That literally means the God of truth. The Amen. That's capitalized there. The faithful and what? True witness. Brethren, again, not to beat a dead horse. We can never beat this thing into the ground because it is so... Uh, needful for us today. The faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. Again, God is going to judge. And He's going to judge you. And He's going to judge all the world. And as this judgment is spoken of in Holy Writ, you want to know a word that keeps coming up over and over again? That He is true. Look with me in Revelation chapter 19. The great white throne judgment. This, brethren, is where men will be judged upon their works. Well, chapter 19, this is, I guess, you know, speaking of his coming in glory to judge. This is before the great right throne judgment, but it's on its way. Look at what the Bible says in verse number 11. I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and him that sat upon it was called faithful. What? True. Look what he's coming to do, brethren. Don't miss that word, judge. He's faithful and true, and in righteous he doth what? Judge and make war. Oh, brethren, again, so such an intricate part of the truthfulness of God that he will judge us truly and righteously because that is who he is. That is an attribute of deity that he can judge based on truth, which is really, really, again, so important. These, brethren, as we look at these, these are just two, there are many in Scripture, of the biblical reasons why it is Christ who will judge all the world. Because he is holy, faithful, and what? True. That's what gives him the eternal right to stand as the judge upon all sinners. This is what he's saying. Now look there. Let's finish this up tonight, verse 7. Look back there at verse number 7, Revelation chapter 3. Look at verse number 7. Look at the third thing he declares to this faithful church. Look at there if you would. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things saith he that is holy and he that is true. Look at the third thing. He that hath the key of David. He that openeth and no man shutteth. And shutteth and no man what a beautiful picture. What a beautiful picture of sovereign God in complete and complete and total control of your life, my life, and everything in your life. Amen? I mean, what a beautiful picture that, that uh, is being painted here. The Lord Jesus declares his eternal power and authority, listen, as the sovereign who will admit and exclude those to whom he will. Think of that for a moment, brethren. His sovereignty is being spoken of here. 
God, the Trinity of God, working together, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, who are holy, 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 will be united in all of these things. The phrase, the key of David, speaks of the governmental authority of King David. Again, this phrase is only used one other time in Scripture. It's interesting, brethren, as you look at these things. <clears throat> and it is there, when it's used, in which God laid the key of the house of David. And this again is Old Testament. We're going to go look at it. He laid on the shoulder of Eliakim, who acted as the governor, determining who would and who would not see the king. God put Eliakim in a place, a governor, if you will, which is what he was. He acted as a governor who had complete authority to say, you can come in and you cannot come in. That's what we're talking about here. Sovereign God. This is an Old Testament portion of Scripture that reveals the New Testament Christ in His glory, in His divinic kingdom, as He's reigning as King. I'll open a door that no man can shut. You know what else I'll do? I'll shut a door that no man can open. This is sovereign God working out His wonderful, beautiful, harmonious, can I say that word again? The liberals love it when I say it, so harmonious plan. Let's look at this. King Eliakim, let's look at this. See what God did. Look here back in Isaiah 22. Again, the only other place in Scripture where this phrase is used. Isaiah 22. Again, I kind of laid the, the groundwork, the narrative. But look at here what the Bible says. Isaiah the great Old Testament, evangelical, Christ-preaching prophet. That's what he's known as. Because he preached as an Old Testament prophet more about the Lord Jesus Christ than any other, any other Old Testament book does. Look there at verse number 20. Isaiah 22, look at verse number 20. The Bible says, And it shall come to pass in that day that I, God, will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah. Hilkiah. And I will clothe him with thy robe and strengthen him with thy girdle and I will commit thy government. Do you see that there? That's an important statement that's made because he's going to be acting as a governor who is in complete control of the government. Again, he is the one who allows in and allows out. He is the one that is in control of that. Give it to him by God himself because God's getting rid of the one that is the doorkeeper right now because of some sin that went on earlier. But look what it says. I will commit thy government into his hand, and he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. Now here's where it's stated, the only other time in Scripture. And the key of the house of David will I lay upon his shoulder. Listen, he shall open, and none shall shut. And he shall shut, and none shall what? Open. Look at verse 23. And I will fasten him as a nail in a sure place. And he shall be for a glorious throne of his father's house. Now, brothers, again, we have Isaiah, the Old Testament prophet, writing something that he sees, how should we say, through smoked glasses. Having no idea that he's writing about the future reign of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is promised by God to sit on the throne of David, his father. This is what we're seeing here, brothers. Let me just say this. 
The key being laid on Eliakim's shoulder speaks of granting great responsibility into his hand and alludes to, and is alluding to. This is sometimes what Old Testament prophecy did and does. It alludes to things. It points to things. It's shadowing some things. And it shadows and alludes to Isaiah's prophecy of the ultimate Davidic ruler. And I want us to look at this, and then we'll be finished tonight, because I wanted to get through this portion of Scripture. The key of David. Now, many confuse it with the keys to the kingdom. That's not what we're talking about here at all. This is the key, singular, of David. Not keys, plural, key. Which, again, is the idea of pointing towards the ultimate Davidic ruler. Look at Isaiah chapter 9. We're right here. Again, a very familiar portion of Scripture to every last one of us. <laughs> Listen to, again, how Isaiah, the great evangelical Old Testament Christ-preaching prophet, look at what he says here in Isaiah chapter 9. Look at verse number 6. The Bible says, and right, we, we always quote this. What time of the year do we always quote this? You can say it. Come on. Speak it out loud. Yeah, yeah, right, yeah, right around that time, right around December, we, we start quoting these verses, right? Oh, brothers, it's so much deeper than that. Look at there. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And the what? Government. You see that there? That's so important. Again, as Eliakim was governor of, their, of God's government in the Old Testament, so Christ is going to be the ruler of God's government in his new kingdom that he's going to be establishing here, Lord willing, in not too long a time. Look at here. And the government shall be upon his what? Shoulder. Where did God put the key, King Elikim? On his what? Shoulder. Yeah, it, it, it's, it's, it's pretty clear. That's, that's what's so wonderful about having, you know, having the scriptures interpret themselves. Old Pastor Mike doesn't have to stand up here and make anything. There's no balloon. There's no, there's no uh, secret thing. The book of Revelation, as I said, is designed by God to reveal Christ as he is. Not to hide him. Not to put him over here where no one can understand it, but to reveal him. And this is what we see. Look at what it says. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. Who's that? The Davidic ruler, the ultimate one, Christ. And his name shall be called, wonderful, Counselor. Listen, the mighty God. How about the next one? The everlasting what? Father. Ooh, you telling me? You're going to lie to me and tell me Jesus never claimed to be God? Yes, he did. Amen. I and my Father are one. <laughs> yes. Listen here. The everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, look at verse 7, of the increase of his what? Government and of peace, there shall be no end. Look at here what he says. Upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with what? Judgment and with justice from henceforth forever, uh, even forever. The zeal of the Lord of the host shall, will perform this. Now, brethren, again, this is so important. Again, as we read portions of Scripture, when God says something in Scripture, it's very important that we connect it. That's why systematic teaching is so important. You know, when you think of the key of David, you will never again think that it's a key to something else. It is a key. The key is representative of Christ, 
and his government, his Davidic kingdom that is yet to become. This is what he's talking about. That glorious day, you know, when he establishes his kingdom on the earth, and the sinners will come before him, it's going to be, it's going to be a most amazing thing. Now, I know there's some different views concerning the kingdom, but from my perspective, from what I believe Scripture teaches, this all fits and ties ultimately together. I was talking with one brother earlier, and you think of the, I'm just going to say it, the post-millennial brethren, and what a steep decline they must be feeling. Because if the kingdom is now, why is all this happening? Why is all this evil taking place? You know, in Christ's millennial kingdom, there's not going to be any of that. He will be ruler over his own government within his own kingdom. Man. The great governor, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the everlasting father. Look at Luke 1. We'll just go into the New Testament just quickly here and we'll finish up. Look at Luke chapter 1. Again, brother, when is this portion of scripture always read? Uh, you can say it. Go ahead. I'm not going to utter it, but you can. <laughs> Look at Luke chapter 1. Remember Linus? Yeah, old Linus, he was, he was reading Luke, wasn't he? Look here at Luke chapter 1. Look at verse number 30. Look what the Bible says there. And the angel said unto her, Fear not, Mary, for thou hast found favor with God. And behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb and bring forth a son, and shall call his name Jesus, and you notice that's all capital letters, Jehovah, Jehovah God. He shall be great, and shall be called the Son of the Highest, and the Lord God, that's the Father, shall give him what? Look what it says there. The Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father, David. Again, the key of David is Christ, who's going to reign on his throne. Ruling his government in holiness and judging in righteousness and truth. Look as it finishes it. And he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there shall be no what? End. Interesting how this all fits together. Now listen, we've we got to close this up. I know we've got to get going. But I want you to look at one more thing. Look at Revelation chapter 5. We'll go back kind of to where we were at earlier. Look at Revelation chapter 5. Because the Lord Jesus is both God and man. Can we use the big, the big theological term in his hypostatic union? Perfect God, perfect man, 100% man, 100% God. Because he is that. And he's in the lineage of David. He alone, brother, has the authority to do what we're going to read. No one else is like him. Can we say it again? In his uniqueness, in his begottenness, in his sinlessness. There's no one like him because no one is worthy to do what we're going to see the Lamb do here in Revelation chapter 5. No one is worthy but him. Because he is God. He was and is sinless. Look what we read there in verse number, chapter 5. Look at verse number 5. One of the elders saith unto me, Weep not. 
They're looking for someone to open the seals. And there's no one that comes forward. So they're weeping. No one is found unique. No one is found holy and true to open the seals. And unleash the judgment that is about to come when he lets this go. You know why? Because he is true and his judgment is true. Therefore, he can open the seal and let it rip. Look at verse 5. And one of the elders saith unto me, Weep not. Behold, the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of who? David, hath prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. Verse 6. And I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne and of the four beasts, and in the midst of the elders, stood a lamb, as it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent forth into yeah, into all the earth. Verse 7, he came and took the book out of the right hand of him that sat upon the throne. And when he had taken the book, the four beasts and the four and twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, having every one of them harps and uh, golden excuse me, vials full of odors, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sung a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof. For thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood, out of every kindred and tongue and people, and nation, and hast made us unto our God kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. And I beheld and heard the voice of many angels round about the throne of the beasts and the elders, and the number of them was ten thousand times ten thousand, and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is who? Worthy is the Lamb. Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. Look there now. He's going to open the seals again because he is God in the flesh. He was perfect God, perfect man. Look at verse chapter 6, verse 1. Look there, if you would. And I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals and heard, as it were, the noise of thunder, one of the four beasts saying, Come and see. The Lord Jesus Christ here in chapter 6, verse number 1, as it was said, stated earlier in chapter 5, that no one but he was worthy to open the seals and unleash the judgment that is coming. The righteous judgment that's going to come from the seals and the trumpets and all of those things. He is righteous God. He is faithful and true. He alone is worthy to open the seals and unleash this unbelievable, if you will, uh, judgment that will, by the way, brethren, as he unleashes the judgments you know what it's going to usher in what are the judgments going to usher in brethren we all know this it's going to usher in his divinic kingdom he alone is worthy to open the seals the trumpets and cast out these judgments because that is what's going to usher in his kingdom he who is faithful and true and holy alone has and is worthy Brethren, let's close. As the mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, Christ will open and no man will shut. He will shut and no man will open. He is sovereign God. He is Christ who will, as the reigning king, decide who comes in and who goes out. Amazing when you think about this. 
you understand, you see how the theology of who Christ is ties into what he said to the church. He introduces himself as this amazing God. The God. Amen. The everlasting Father. That's what Isaiah said. Hard for us to fathom, isn't it, brother? And yet we see just the truthfulness of Scripture concerning who he is. Amen. Next week, Lord willing, we're going to take up verse number 8, 9, and 10. We'll get those in there because verses 8, 9, and 10 are very, obviously, as they all are, important. Because we're going to look at Christ as his activity continues as he holds the door open. He does that. Do you remember, do you remember the ark? Let's close with the, the narrative of the ark. Do you remember the ark? Do you remember what Noah was preaching? Get on the ark. It's going to rain. God's judgment is coming. You remember the door laid open and it laid open and they built for 120 years and he preached for 120 and it laid open and laid open. And then something amazing happens. As the animals come, have you guys, by the way, I don't want to chase a rat, but I'm going to say it. I saw this happen this morning again. See, people say when the animals came, well, that's far-fetched. That's just, children, listen to me. Oh no, look outside right now. What are all the birds doing? The birds are all doing what? They're all gathering together. Have you seen the flocks of them? You see it every spring and fall. They are gathering together. Who told them to do that? Did you tell them to do that? No, this is God innately putting it in them. They gather together. You know what they're going to do? I'd like to jump on their wings because they're going to go south. When the animals came to the ark, they came two by two. And how many others? Clean animals. How many of the clean animals came? Two of the dirty and seven. Yes. Yes, I saw the ladies over here. Seven of the clean. Yes. They all gathered together. They came running, got on the ark. And something amazing happened. The Lord God shut the door. Remember that? That door didn't shut by itself. God shut it. And you know what happens when God shut the door? You know who couldn't open it? No man. Nobody. And it started to rain. And God's righteous judgment came upon those who were outside of the ark. He closed the door. No man could open it because his righteous judgment is raining down upon men. Wow. Think of that for a moment. Here, next week, Lord willing, he's going to open the door and he's going to stand there and hold the door open. But it's going to close. But he's the one who holds it open. Man, wow, what an amazing thing. See, little things like that, I love things like that. That goes to who he is. The God-man. The Lord Jesus Christ. The Savior of his sheep. Those to whom he shed his blood for. Believe on him tonight, brother. Listen, let me just quote it and we're going to pray. Get a bumper sticker back there. Grab one going out the door. Little like little magnet, stick it on your car there. Got a couple yard signs if you like one. I got several of those. Hey, listen, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, thou shalt be, what? Saved. That's a biblical truth. Let's pray together. Father, this evening we are so thankful for your word. We're so thankful for the theology that it just gets deeper. I mean, it'll spin you right down deep. And Father, we thank you that you that the Lord Jesus Christ 
stood amongst his sixth candlestick, the church there in Philadelphia. He stood there and proclaimed to be eternal sovereign God as a member of the Holy Trinity. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Father, we thank you for that truth this evening. And Father, we pray that many will believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, that you will draw them onto yourself, that uh, you will open their eyes, that they might see, and their ears, that they might hear, their hearts, that they might understand. Father, we thank you tonight for those who are here who are saved, those who are in the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for them. And Father, we pray that the saints will be edified through the praying that we were privileged to do together this evening as Brother Howard led us in prayer. Father, we got to pray for so many of our sick brethren. We got to pray for, uh, for uh, Brother Dean and his family. Father, thank you for that privilege, one that is given only to the saints. Only to the saints. Father, we thank you for that. Father, we, we thank you for our children. We thank you, Father, that you would bless us so much with so many young families, so many young children, and yes, the, the crying in the background is music to our ears. Father, we, we thank you for blessing us with so many young families and young children. And Father, we thank you for those who are single in our church. We thank you for them. Uh, Father, at this stage in their life, if they're younger, then Father, they're probably seeking your face to be married to a godly man or be married to, as the men are praying, the young men, for a godly wife. And Father, we thank you. May you keep them just uh, in a good place with that. May they wait upon you as you move and bring them together in holy matrimony. Father, we thank you for... Uh, the uh, older couples in our church as well. We've just been blessed all across the, really the spectrum, uh, which is a sign of a good, healthy church. Thank you for the older couples as well, and Father, for the, uh, how you use them to teach the younger men, uh, the older men will teach the younger men, the older ladies will teach the younger ladies. Father, we thank you for those ministries within the fellowship here. And uh, Lord, again, just uh, we thank you for, again, we have some widows in our church and uh, those to whom we take care of. We have some orphans in our church, and we thank you for that as well, that you would bless us with the ability to care for them, to watch over them. And uh, that is, as James wrote, that is biblical religion. There is unbiblical religion, unholy religion, and then there is biblical religion, which you speak of, and that is part of it, taking care of orphans and widows, and we thank you for that. And Father, now uh, we pray for our marriages. We pray again, Father, that you would bless them, that you would watch over us in our marriages, that you would protect us as it is under attack viciously. And, uh, Father, we just pray for holiness, pray that we might walk. What does the Bible say? Walk circumspectly, for the days are evil. Father, again, we love you and we thank you and pray all these things in Jesus' name.
all God's people said.